of Saturday, breaking cycles, we rebels. Stuff of Saturday, uplift with love. Stuff of Saturday, breaking cycles, we rebels. Welcome to Self Love Saturday, where loving ourselves is an act of rebellion. This is your host, Dr. Anissa Shomo, everyone's favorite family doctor. And we have a special guest today, Dr. Robert Pulliam, everyone's favorite, you know, second favorite, I don't know, first favorite, I don't know, other favorite, <laughs> family doctor as well in psychiatry, and also my husband. Um, Dr. Robert Pulliam, you want to say anything more about yourself? Um. Uh, I guess, well, I guess I could start with, uh, thank you for having me on, but, uh, so yeah, I am a family doctor as well as a psychiatrist, and I just also happen to be married to Dr. Shomo, um, so, so currently I, I work for the local university, and I work, I do lots of jobs, so I do both in primary care and psychiatry. I work in the hospital as well as, well as outpatient psychiatry and primary care. And uh, I mean, I don't know if you want to know anything personal about me or not, but I guess we'll, we'll end up talking about that kind of stuff probably. Yeah, of course. So Dr. Pulliam, I guess I'll just call you Robert. I've been calling everybody by their first names. I don't know why I wouldn't call you by your first name since we're, we know each other very well as spouses. <laughs> Yeah. So Robert, I brought you here today because in the last couple of episodes, I've been talking to my friends from college. Um, we we kind of, you know, we're talking about our relationships. And so, of course, I share some things about our relationship together. And um, so I was talking to Sandra for an episode um, last month. And one of the things we talked about was just like, you know, relationships and we talked about just the examples of relationships that we had in our family and how that impacted our ideas of gender roles and our idea of how families should work. Um, so a lot of people know, as I've talked about on my other episodes, is we don't have children and we're both physicians. And so I think that, you know, it's a, it's a unique, you know, it's a special kind of marriage and that since we both you know, are what are considered high earners, we make similar amount of money. Um, and so then it becomes this idea of like, well, how do you take care of your household? Who, how do you divide roles um, in that way? Because generally, you know, money is kind of one of the things that functions as trying to figure out how to divide up roles, like who owns them, who earns the most money, um, it, you know, usually gets to work more. And then the person who doesn't earn as much money usually will spend a lot of time either taking care of the house or taking care of children. Um, so for me and my home, I grew up with parents who owned a business. And so my father helped a lot with everything. Um, my, my father did dishes, my father um, baked. Um, so for me, you know, I felt like that was one of the things that made the grab that like, you know, when I met you, you reminded me a lot of my father. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, he does everything like my father does. Like a lot of times people are like, you know, how did you meet somebody like that? And I think for me, I was just open to the idea of having somebody who did a lot of things um, because you because my father did a lot of things. Yeah. So just tell me more about like, you know, how how your father was and like how you were able to learn a lot of things that 
just how that kind of plays into your idea of gender roles and how relationships should work. Yeah. Um, I mean, to give it, I guess, to give it a little bit of context and perspective, I mean, I, I grew up in a, in a military family. So, um, when I, so when the year I was born was actually my father's last year and he retired the year I was born. So, um, for the first probably four or five years of my life, my dad was actually a stay at home dad. Um, while my mother was, she stayed in the military, um, and she stayed in the military probably for another eight years after I was born. So a lot of my really young childhood was my dad was, was the, uh, you know, the homemaker. So he was the one that cooked our meals and, you know, sent us off to school and took care of the house and that kind of stuff. Um, and then when my mother, when her, uh, last term was finished, then both of my parents worked, um, most of the time because we, we didn't have very much money. We were pretty poor, even though, you know, we, my dad had retired from the military and my mother had been in the army. So, and then it became, you know, they both shared responsibilities, but my dad was usually always the one who was, you know, cooking and took care of the house and, and, and my mother, um, worked a lot. So, I mean, I, I guess that's kind of where for my family, that's kind of the context that we grew up in. Um, yeah. And I think that, I think that it's rare, like it's rare for number one, for you to have been born. When you said military family, people always assume that your father was in the military, but mm. it's very rare for someone to be born into a family where both their parents are, were in the military. And then your father was the one who was able to retire and take care of you while your mother was still in the military. Right. Yeah. A lot of people do assume that it's, that was my dad, but you know, my dad, you know, essentially, you know, I never knew my dad while he was in the army. Right. Yeah. I only knew, I only knew my mother while she was in the army. Right. Yeah. So it's just an interesting, it's an interesting perspective because it's the same for me. Like, you know, like I said, my parents had a business. So um, my dad was really the one who took us to school you know, he would, he would drive us to school. He would, he was the one who made the deliveries. Like my mom, she iced the cakes, um, and she was a cake decorator. So he would bake the cakes. He would be the one who do the kind of the early morning work. And then she would ice the cakes, decorate them, and then he would deliver them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like I said, it was just that kind of teamwork of whatever it took to make the family work, because I wouldn't say that we were the poorest family because we actually did have quite, we had things like we had cars, we owned a house. Um, we lived a fairly middle-class kind of like lower middle-class life, but in my family, there's nine of us. <laughs> so, so it's just like, you know, we had a four bedroom house, but for nine children, that's, you know, I didn't have a bedroom until I was probably like seven years old. So it's just kind of like, you know, in the context of, of for most people, what we had growing up is more than most people had. Like we had our own business, we had, um, we owned a home. Um, we actually inherited my grandmother's house too. So we had two homes, we had two cars. So we have more than, than a lot of people. But one of the things we never really had enough of was clothing, food, um, time, you know? <laughs> so yeah. it was just one of those things from being such a big family um, that really, 
I will say that like, that's why my, one of my love languages is acts of service, because that's kind of how we show love and care in my family was just to do things for each other because we didn't have like, you know, a lot of money for gifts or that sort of thing. Um, and just, we learned how to just take care of each other. Like I learned how to take care of my younger siblings and help my older siblings um, with different things because, you know, that's just how it works. Like your older siblings usually, I'm a younger sibling, so I know you're the oldest. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was about to say. I kind of, you know, when I was growing up, so, I mean, first of all, like in my, because of the way that we grew up, you know, I guess we didn't have roles that were kind of defined as this is what mom does and this is what dad does. We just, they just things that needed to get done, right? right. So, yeah. and whoever did it, did it. Um, and I, but yeah, I was, for me, you know, my dad actually had two families and so we are his second family. So I'm the oldest of the second family. And so I think the other thing that happened is naturally as you, as the oldest person, you are, you know, either formally or informally tasked to help raise your younger siblings. And so a lot of things that my dad had done while I was grown, you know, while he was at home and taking care of us, I naturally kind of inherited those, those chores um, as I got older. So, you know, he taught me how to cook and clean and fix stuff and, and also help take care of my younger sisters. So. Yeah. And I'm the same way. Like I'm the, I call myself the oldest of the youngest because I'm technically the middle child because I'm in the middle age wise. My oldest sister is 10 years older than me and my youngest sister is eight years younger than me. Um, but being a sixth child, the middle child is really number five um, of nine. So, but I had to, uh, I had to help with my younger siblings. Um, mostly my, I have a sister who's two years younger than me. So I didn't help that much with her, but my, my brother who's seven years younger than me and my baby sister who's eight years younger than me, I helped a lot with taking care of them, um, making meals, helping them with their homework, uh, changing diapers even. Um, and then my older sisters, um, started having kids when I was like in middle school and high school. So I helped a lot with helping raise my nieces and nephews um, at a fairly young age. Um, so for me, you know, that just being raised with a lot of sisters, um, I think it was like everybody was kind of different in that in that role as well. Like some of my sisters were a little bit more maternal and some of them weren't as interested in helping with raising kids, that sort of thing. So I think that just it was just, I don't know, it was, a, it was a really great experience to be raised around like a variety of women. And then also to have a father who was just like, things need to get done. Cause like my little brother, my, my dad is like six, six, as you know. Um, but, and my brother is also very tall. So my brother from like age four at like age four was washing dishes in the bakery. Like he literally had a crate that he would stand on. <laughs> He would be washing these like huge vats, you know, for the icing and the and the mixing and all that sort of stuff. So um, it was definitely an interesting experience to grow up in a huge family and a family business. And my and actually, what's interesting is my father is the oldest of and he has two sisters. And so I think that for him, because he's the oldest sibling, like he was invested in just doing whatever needed to be done. And he was never. Um, I won't say my dad is a little bit kind of, um, he has some sexist tendencies at times. Um, but for the most part, he always, I feel like he talks a good game. <laughs> you know, you talk a good game about like, oh, well, women need to do this and women need to do that. But in reality, um, 
he knows that you got to do what you got to do to to take care of the family and take care of a household and to earn money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, for, you know, at least in my case, so I, you know, I have two younger sisters and then, you know, my mother. So, you know, we only, there's only three women in our house and then, you know, my father and I, but I think, you know, growing up, you know, initially with my dad at home, you know, it's a different perspective, I guess. And in terms of, you know, who's the primary uh, parent that's as home when, you know, during your formative years. And, you know, for my father, it was never, uh, there was never any, you know, advertising or propaganda about gender roles in our house. You know, he, his big thing was, you know, being resilient and self-reliant. And so, you know, knowing how to cook and sew and clean for your, you know, that was not about whether you're a man or woman, that was about being able to take care of yourself. Right. Um, And that was kind of the, that was kind of the big thing for my father teaching us is while we were growing up, is like learning how to take care of your car is the same as being able to cook, right? right? It's all about being able to take care of yourself. It's not about identifying gender roles and, you know, a woman should be able to do this and a man should be able to do that. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of the message of the army too. Like the army is really about um, taking care of yourself and taking care of your community. And one of the things you've told me before is just like in the army, they don't have they don't have like repair places, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like there's, you have to learn how to do all of that stuff because you're kind of isolated and, you know, you have to learn how to hem your own pants and you have to learn how to, you know, change your tires and that sort of thing because you're in remote areas often. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yep. No, I mean, that's a, I mean, that's kind of an old fashioned thing too. I mean, I, you know, my, my father, you know, both of us, we have kind of older parents. Yeah. And, but even, you know, my mother's, you know, my mother's, my maternal grandmother and my great grandmother, I lived around them a lot too. And they, you know, they grew up during, you know, post World War II. My great grandmother was, you know, lived during World War II. And so that was also the same mentality. Like it's being able to take care of yourself. And it doesn't matter whether you're a woman or a man, because a lot of women at that time, you know, were doing the more, the, identified you know male roles like they were working and stuff during world war ii because all the men were at war right so it's also it's kind of a generational thing i think um but also you know obviously i think each family just whatever each family thinks is important is what ends up getting taught to their children obviously yeah and i think i think that was part of part of why our generation is probably different in that sense of like trying to identify people who can stay at home, like trying to divvy up like who is earning more money to go to work and who is earning less money to potentially work less and stay at home is because like growing up, there was more of a traditional model. Um, Like our grandparents and our parents grew up where they didn't have as much concern about childcare because they were generally closer to their family. So my mom was a stay-at-home mom for years because she didn't live in Chicago where we where she grew up. My mom was from Chicago. So when she came to Cleveland and like having nine children, um, she stayed at home until until I think I was about five years old. 
And then that's when my parents got the business. So I don't, I don't remember that much about my mom being a stay-at-home mom. I remember more about my parents being business owners. And I remember my mom being a, like a businesswoman who had her own bakery, you know? So that taught me a lot about, that's part of why I pursue entrepreneurship because I know how powerful it is to own your own um, business and be able to have control over your own environment and workplace because, you know, because when you own your own business, then your kids can come and work with you. Like we were always there. There wasn't really a big need for like childcare um, other than my, when my little brother and baby sister, when they were um, young and they didn't want them like messing everything up at the bakery. <laughs> so they would be a childcare, you know, they would be at daycare. Um, but other than that, like most of us who were older, we would always just be at the bakery trying to help out. So it just kind yeah. of created this, this kind of like, um, you know, like second home for us all to be able to be together without having to figure out like who's gonna, and it, it created a lot of flexibility for my parents to be able to be like, all right, well, the kids get out of school at this time, but you need to go pick them up. And then they would just take us to the bakery. So I think that now just the way everything is, it's like you, there's, there's not as much support of that extended family to help with childcare. And, and there's not a lot of people who own their own businesses to just take their kids to work with them. So then that be, then that creates a lot more conversations about um, who's going to stay home and who's going to go to work. And traditionally, women have um, been not paid as well as men. So that's kind of like, you know, it's one of those things of like equity as far as our the pay disparity generally means that a lot of women are not going to earn as much as their as their you know spouse is, if they're a man. So and then it, you know you think about spot like couples that are two women and that you know is often kind of a hard thing like if you have two women who are both being underpaid because of our society then it becomes a you know still a conversation of who earns the most money and you hope that one of those women is earning enough money to support the family I um, mean and, and actually so um, when I talked to Alex a couple weeks ago we talked about how there was a lesbian couple who took turns um, so you know one of them had a more flexible job, but the other one didn't, but they just both took like three months of leave or six months of leave to kind of take turns taking care of um, a new a newborn child. Yeah. Um, well, that's what I, because one of the things I was thinking of, I was thinking about some of my friends who are in those kind of relationships where, you know, there's one person who's like a breadwinner and the other person, I don't know, I guess, kind of stays home and takes care of, you know, kids or the house or whatever. And I think one of the weird things that it, it sets up like a competition between, <laughs> between uh, the two people in a relationship, which is kind of weird to me. Like, you know, when I was growing up and I, you know, looking at my parents, like I said, after, you know, after I turned like five or six, my dad went back to work and both my parents worked. And so, and unfortunately, or fortunately, that usually meant we had a lot of babysitters. So, because we were home, you know, with a babysitter most of the time, because my parents usually weren't home until six or seven o'clock at night. And so it was, it wasn't really a competition between the two. They both worked to, you know, take care of the family. Um, and we just had a lot in terms of childcare, we had a lot of babysitters up until I was old enough to, you know, be the babysitter, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, by that time I was, I was the one that was, you know, when we came home from school, like I was the one doing the after school snacks and then or starting dinner, you know, waiting for our parents to come home and 
cleaning the house and doing chores and stuff. So I think from that was the other part of it is, you know, we had to we as kids had to take care of the house while my both of my parents worked. But it always seems strange to me when I see other people in relationships and it kind of sets up this like competition between themselves and their significant other in terms of like who's making money. And I see a lot of men who become who get depressed, especially in my outpatient practice, I'll see a lot of men who get depressed because their wife is working and they're not. Right. Um, and it's, it's being, it's yet to kind of be more flexible. It's like, well, you're in a partnership when you're with a significant other. And so that means there's going to be ebb and flow, you know, someone's going to be making money while the other person's not, or you're both are going to be making money. And it's not about, you know, who is taking over the responsibility. It's, it's the two of you or three, you know, however many people are in your relationship, right? Uh, you know, cause it is 2022, but right. uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just about taking care of each other. So. Right. And that's what really gets lost a lot. I feel because and you're right. It does create a lot of competition at times and you know, there there's competition. And then sometimes there's just what feels like injustice. Like, so I have seen people in that um, competition kind of role of, you know, not being as supportive as they can. I've seen it a lot as well. But I know that for you and I, like, um, there's been times like, like yesterday, for example, I was home most of the day, but I was doing a lot of work from home. And by the time I got back home after a meeting, um, you were on your way to the grocery store to, to go buy stuff to make dinner. And while you were at the grocery store, I did the dishes. And then you came home and you said, oh, you did the dishes. I was gonna do that when I came home. And I said, well, you know, we're a team. You went to the grocery store, the kitchen was dirty. I went ahead and cleaned it. I wasn't really doing anything else. Um, So it's just one of those things of like, having compassion for your partner and empathy and appreciating them. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I mean, I don't know why you would be in a relationship if you don't have compassion for the other person, you know, so right. like you just want to help the other, you know, you want part of being in a relationship is what makes you happy is making the other person happy, right? So, right. Um, yeah. And I think that for us, like I know that one of my love language, love languages is acts of service. So for me, it does make make me happy when I can do something for you. And you do a lot of things for me, um, of course, like cook dinner like you cooked last night you know <laughs> so so you know you help me with cooking dinner or I'll ask you to change my oil or I'll ask you to open things because I'm too weak to open them <laughs> so, so I really appreciate all the things you do for me so anytime that I can do anything for you I do try to do that um, but as far as you know what I was saying about injustice I didn't tell a lot of people this but one of the things that you know, it wasn't necessarily like one of the things that I knew was wrong at our, my last job. So a lot of people don't know this, but in the job I worked before, the current job that I have now, we worked for the same organization, not in the same site, but for the same organization. And on paper, they were paying you double what they were paying me. Yeah. And I just felt like it wasn't fair. And I, part of it was because I was already being underpaid and I had been advocating for them to to pay me more because they weren't covering my salary they weren't covering my benefits. Um, so it was like a contract thing where I was still being paid, you know, a decent wage and I still have my benefits covered, but the organization who contracted with my organization 
wasn't actually paying the appropriate amount for my time. So we had been talking about negotiating that to, to be hired. But then when they brought you on in the same kind of contract situation, they were paying you double what I was being paid. And I was just like, well, that's not, that's not fair at all. Like, and somebody needs to change it. And obviously there were a lot of reasons why I left that organization. But part of it was like, it's, it's never going to change as long as I stay here and accept this. No. Yeah, I don't know how to, yeah, that's kind of weird. So I, I think, uh, I mean, I guess our situation was a little bit special because I, I, I never worked, I never worked for this place full time. So my, I don't actually make <laughs> twice of what you make. Right. My job is split up so many different ways and I have so many different people paying my salary, but. Um, no, it was just, it was just like a, it was like a theoretical thing because I wasn't being underpaid either. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the way they do salaries in our, in our departments, we work in two different departments, but, but it's supposed to be pretty equal pay for equal work. And of course it doesn't always work that way though. Like a lot of the men in our department still get paid more than the women. Um, and then, cause it really depends on where your job is. And so a lot of the men end up having like the really high profile jobs. Mm. So that glass ceiling effect, even though in, in theory, we're all getting paid the same amount of money in reality, a lot of the men are in the power positions where they're getting paid more. And so, you know, that was, that was a weird situation where it was like, you weren't necessarily being paid more than me, but on paper, they were valuing your work more than they valued mine. And part of it was kind of, there were two things that kind of played into that. One of it was that you were hired after me. I started working as an attending before you did. So the, the salaries had changed a lot in that, in that, I guess it was what, four years, four year difference. Yeah. Uh, between when I, I think when I finished fellowship and when you finished residency, it was a four year gap. And so in that, in that five years, the salaries changed quite a bit. So that was part of why I was like, well, let me go let me go get a new job because honestly, a lot of times that's how doctors end up being able to afford things um, is they have to change jobs because the cost of living goes up higher every, you know, it's been going up a lot and our loans have been so much that it's often really hard to afford. You know, a lot of people have no idea. They're like, as doctors, you should be able to afford everything, but we're like, we pay a lot of taxes and then we have to pay all these student loans and then we have to pay for our own health insurance. And then we have to pay, you know what I mean? <laughs> like people don't, you know, and I'm not complaining because obviously we still, you know, make a living wage more than a lot of other people, but we have a lot of expenses that a lot of people don't have, you know, yeah. um, like mostly the taxes and the student loan debt we have. Like when we graduated, when I graduated medical school, I owed like $200,000 and that was, and I didn't even have to pay to go to undergrad. Right. So a lot of people don't think about the fact that we have to pay that is like a mortgage, you know what I mean? <laughs> like that's as much as a mortgage Could most people afford two mortgages. Um, and so, you know, that was one of the reasons why I was like, well, let me, let me change jobs so that I can be paid what people are being paid now as new grads. Oh, the other, the other piece was that we both are, um, have, are double boarded. So you being double boarded in family medicine, psychiatry, psychiatry is seen as more valuable than my specialty. So I'm a geriatrician. So I'm double boarded in family medicine and geriatrics. So geriatrics is very important and keeping older adults alive and safe is a very hard job, but it's not valued at the same, same kind of like price point as psychiatry. Yeah, I think, well, I think that's just because 
I don't, I definitely would not say that psychiatry is more important than geriatrics or even primary care for that matter. I think it's more of like demand. So yeah, I think there's just a higher demand for psychiatry because there's not as many of us as there are family doctors and geriatricians. Right. I think um, there's probably more psychiatrists than there are geriatrics specialists, but I think that people just don't really understand what, what it is that we do as geriatric specialists. Mm-hmm. I think that they don't understand like how how our brain is trained to think about how to keep older adults safe um, and how how effective we are at our job. Like last week, you know, one of the things that we really deal with is like just keeping older adults safe, like fall risk, medication, um, side effects. And the biggest thing is driving, like keeping older adults who are having trouble off the road. Like that's one of the biggest things that we do is try to keep the community safe from older adult drivers who sometimes we just drive into like crowded places, you know? Um, So I think that a lot of people don't understand how we can solve a lot of problems of keeping older adults safe and in their homes longer and all that sort of thing. So they don't put like a, they don't put a number on it because they don't understand it. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, there might be more psychiatrists, but I, like I said, I think there's more demand. I, the other thing too, is I, it's probably our society is getting to that point, but hasn't gotten there yet where most of society is going to be geriatric people. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like more people are having smaller families. There's less younger people. Um, and so I think people are going to essentially at some point, I think the need for geriatrics is going to be much greater or maybe just as high a demand as, you know, psychiatry is, but. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I just, I just really, um, I think for me, one of the biggest things I talked to my mentees about, about being a physician is how important it is to have a partner that is compassionate and that is willing to be a team because I don't know how I would doctor and take care of people if I wasn't in a partnership at home and having like, because I feel like we just have a really peaceful, loving home. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about it. <laughs> uh, a loving, yeah. I don't know about Pete. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, um, no, I, I, I think it's, it is, um, especially the journey to becoming a doctor. It definitely is much easier if you have, if you're, if it's, if you have stability at home, it's, you know, one less thing you have to worry about. You know, I, I, I think about a lot of other people that I know who don't have that stability as they're still trying to go to medical school or finish residency. And I think it definitely makes it a lot easier to have a partner that is, and you're in a stable relationship with that partner while you're, you know, doing something like becoming a doctor. Um, so I definitely think it's, you know, we've benefited each other from having that relationship at the time that we, you know, had it. Right. And I think that one of the biggest things of how we have been able to just support each other and have a loving and peaceful home is we did a lot of work early in our relationship. So we met each other when we were 18 years old. (laughs) We've been together almost 20 years. Um, And so we, I think that when we moved in together, we had been together for seven years and we, it was our first time living together as a couple who are both, who was both in medicine at that time. And I think that 
just having that foundation of those seven years of really learning each other's quirks and learning how each other communicates and learning, you know, like when is it time to actually say say something and advocate for yourself? And when is it time to just be like, they're probably just tired and I just need to, you know, let that go, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I think that it's, it's definitely a luxury to have that amount of time since we met each other so young. Um, I know a lot of people don't have that amount of time to just get to know each other and learn each other and create that stability before they get married. Like we got married at like year 10 of our relationship. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing too about it, it's not even about getting to know the other person, but even getting the time to get to know yourself. So, you know, a lot of people get in really serious relationships when they're in their, you know, early twenties. And I mean, that works for some people, but a lot of people don't even know who they are. Right. You know, when you're 23, (laughs) 24 years old. Right. You know, you have a better idea of who you are and what you're becoming when you're, you know, the time that we, you know, moved in together, we were pushing our thirties. And right at that, at that point, you kind of know, you know, the trajectory of your life a little bit better. Right. And I often say that I feel like if we would have gotten married, like right after college and we're trying to figure out life at that point and point there before we were really stable in our careers. I'm not sure that we would have made it because I will honestly say that it was actually really hard to keep that stability while we were both in residency because residency is definitely a really stressful, unsettling time in your life. Mm -hmm. And it makes it really hard to have stability and peace. Especially Um, when you're working together at the same residency. (laughs) And your wife is your boss. (laughs) (laughs) I forget about that. I don't tell that story a lot. So yeah. That time when we were on inpatient together and I was a third year and you were an intern and our house was just a mess and we were at work and I told our boss, like our, our program director, that it was a bad idea. He did not listen to me. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, um, I want to get married because we weren't even, we were engaged at the time. We weren't even married yet. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, I don't want to get, you know, unengaged over us working together. Um, but it was mostly fine. I just told them that I wouldn't, I would try to supervise you as little as possible because I, I didn't feel comfortable being your boss. Like, I was just like, I don't, I don't want to be in charge of my fiance and his, and his job, you know, <laughs> so, it was mostly okay. Yeah. Except for that time I got hangry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I, I mean, I personally, so when it comes to like you being my supervisor, like it never bothered me because you had more, you know, you have more experience, you, you have more knowledge than me. So that, that didn't really bother me at all. Um, I think it was just, you know, we are obviously more comfortable with each other than, you know, an, another pair of like a senior and an intern. So we would maybe argue a little bit more than we probably should have at work. And I know we made other residents uncomfortable when we were, you know, arguing at work, but that's that's what I'm saying. We only argued one time when I was hangry. I was hangry at work and the attending was blowing us up. Like you need to put in these orders. And you were having a moment about like a surgeon who was, you know, not doing whatever it was that you were, you were needing. And I was just like, all right, honey, I need you to put in these orders so we can go home and eat. (laughs) And my co-resident was like, like, I obviously didn't say it in that way. I was like, you, I was like, I'm hungry. Put in these orders. 
<laughs> and one of our co-residents is like, hey, cut it out. <laughs> yeah. One of, I think it was my co-resident who was also a, a, a third year at the time. So that was the only time. It was mostly okay. But yeah, it sometimes, you know, the the work-life boundaries can uh, can be a little weird when you are in that kind of a role and paired up in a supervisor, supervisee role um, at jobs <laughs> and you're, yeah. when you're engaged. <laughs> but I, I think that kind of as another perspective to like our relationship because i feel like one of the things that we do we learn from each other a lot like we spend a lot of time learning different things from you know our because we each have like a unique personal experience when it comes to both like just our personal lives but also our careers and so we do spend a lot of time i think that's one of the things that makes our relationship a little bit healthier than maybe some others is because we learn from each other too right like we teach each other stuff all the time right and i think that what is good about that is we have a mutual respect like i have a lot of respect for what it is that you do and your knowledge and you have a lot of respect for what it is that i do and my knowledge and i feel like sometimes when people are in those relationships and that like kind of that competition it makes you kind of downplay each other's expertise and be like, oh, well, and be kind of dismissive of people. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, just, just like I said, being able to grow up together and just know from a young age that we both were very talented and knowledgeable and develop that respect and keep that respect has really served us well in our careers because we've, we're both better doctors because of what we've learned from each other, but also, it's been really helpful in our marriage because we we have a really good foundation of communication at this point. Like I won't say that early on we were the best at communicating, but we took a lot of time to figure out like how to communicate better. I think that just being able to keep that um, communication and being able to talk to your partners in a way that is effective and compassionate, empathetic, respectful, um, is where a lot of people kind of get lost. Um, and I think that, like you were saying, like you have to know yourself well enough to have compassion for yourself that you're not perfect to really understand that your partner is not perfect. And just because neither one of you are perfect doesn't mean that you ever need to be disrespectful. Right. No, I mean, it's, <laughs> it seems simple and it's hard to do, but, you know, basically it's like you, obviously you want to treat your partner the way you want your partner to treat you. So <laughs> I don't, but it, that sometimes can be difficult because, you know, even though we are in relationships with significant others, you know, we still only experience those relationships in ourselves, like in our, you know, our body, like we can't physically put ourselves in the other person. And so, so one, it's recognizing that you are in a partnership, but it's a partnership between two different people who have their own different lives. And, and right. so you, you know, it's sort of figuring out, you know, between the two of you what's important and how you work together to you know maintain that relationship i guess right and the other the big thing that you just said right there that people have told me a lot about our relationship is two things one of it is we each have our own like space in our lives because i feel like a lot of times that people when they're in a relationship they try to merge everything And then they never have space for themselves to either know who they are and the things that they like. Um, And even just to 
create space where they can talk freely about whatever their frustrations are in their marriage or, you know, in their lives and that sort of thing. I feel like people have often told me like, it's, they admire the fact that we like, you know, I can just leave and go to Cleveland for a weekend and you'll just hang out here in the garage and you don't, you know what I mean? Like we just understand that we both have different interests and that we allow each other that freedom to do whatever we're interested in versus always be together. And so we have the time when we do make plans together, but we also have times when we can be separate and that's okay. Yeah. No, I think it's important. I think um, one of the things that, especially when I was doing a lot more couples uh, counseling and therapy um, a long time ago is um, I think one of the pitfalls that a lot of couples fall into is that they see themselves as like a, uh, I don't know, like a, a one, they see their relationship as like one entity, right? But it's, you know, a relationship is actually three things. It's, you know, or if it's, you know, depending on how many people are in your relationship again, right. but like if you have a couple in a relation, you know, it's one person, another person, and then it's the lives of the two people together. Right. So, right. Um, and really to be happy, you kind of have to be willing to work in all three of those aspects, like respect the other person's life, but also commit to the life of, you know, to the, the life of the togetherness, I guess, but then also your own individual personal growth has to go in with that as well. Right. And so that, you know, that's one thing that, you know, a lot of people probably should work on more is just trying to figure out how to help each other, like have some independence away from their marriage, because it definitely makes it easier to come together and spend time together when you're like, oh yeah, I have this whole other, you know, these uh, this other support system outside of my marriage because a lot of people can be really lonely in their marriages without having um, just a, another support system, village, tribe, outside of a marriage. And the other thing that I, you know, the other piece of what you said that um, really resonated with me is how important it is to understand that your partner, you and your partner, your brains do not think the same. So I think that so, so much in relationships, people try to make their partner think exactly like them and not necessarily respect that their partner is going to have their own thoughts and their own mind and their own viewpoint and their own perspective. And I don't know, I just feel like so, so much time is spent on that controlling and manipulation. And I honestly felt like when we first started dating, I would I would be a little bit controlling when it came to you. Like, I want to hang out because I'm an extrovert and you wanted to stay home because you're an introvert. And I'm like, well, why can't you just hang out? And I would be really dramatic. <laughs> so it took me, a, uh, you know, it just took me a while to really learn how to just be like, well, Robert doesn't like going out as much as I do. So I need to give him that space and allow him that time and allow him that boundary. Like you have really good boundaries when you're young. <laughs> so, so, but it made me like, you know, and just the way you communicated them to me would be like, you know, it's not anything personal. I just sometimes don't want to go and do things all the time. And I think that as an extrovert, our brains just don't think that way. And so it's sometimes hard. You're like, do you really love me? And why don't you want to hang out? But learning that at a young age, and I'm just the way I am, I am very empathetic. And so I can put myself in other people's shoes often. And that's one of the things that makes me a great doctor. But I find that so many times in people's relationships, they can't put themselves in other people's shoes 
or they just can't, they sometimes don't have that respect for the way that their brain thinks. Yeah. No, I think it, you know, for me, it kind of worked the other way too. Like I, you know, have to understand that there are certain things that make you happy that I don't necessarily want to do, but like I, <laughs> but, you know, I have to be willing to do some of the, you know, for us to, you know, work together and, to, you know, have a happy life together. Right. And so it's, I mean, it's, it's all, comp- it's all compromise. Yeah, that's yeah. What, yeah. And I think that, get, I think that is the biggest thing that gets lost in relationships. It's like, you know, you can have these, you know, even to go back to, you know, how we started the conversation where, you know, people have these well-defined roles and, you know, this, this person does this and I do this, I make the money, they stay home, you know, that's not, you have to be willing to change and be flexible. And it's all about compromise. It's like, it's not about maintaining these roles. It's about maintaining your relationship. And so, and what that looks like is probably going to change if, you know, if you have a long, healthy relationship, the way you, the way you work together when you're two years in is going to be much different than the way you work together when you're 10 years in. Right. Uh, yeah. And that is, that is very important because that's one of the biggest things that we've been together for 20 years. Like our housing situations have definitely changed. When we met each other, we lived in the dorms and then in college, we lived with our roommates and then, then we lived together and we now we're on like our third housing. Um, you know, we're, we bought our house five years ago. Um, but this is our third, you know, place that we've lived together, our third home. So every every home, we had a different career and we had a different work schedule and we had a different surroundings and our activities were different. But it's been really amazing to grow together and to grow up together. You know, like over 20 years, we really have grown up together. And I often just look around and just so proud of us being able to be flexible and support each other and to make it work. Yeah. Yeah, agree. (laughs) And of course, you know, I mean, it's easier to do that when you have two people who are willing to do it and who can be empathetic and compassionate and respectful, because I, you know, I would never want people to be proud of being together for 20 years if it's a terrible marriage, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, I'm proud of the fact that we could figure out and keep that compassion, that love, that respect for each other without it really ever going sour. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you are proud of our 20 years and that it hasn't been horrible. All right. Well, maybe we should leave, maybe yeah. we should leave it there. And with that, thanks, Dr. Pulliam, for bringing down the... <laughs> no, I think that's that... That's what I'm good at. No, that's why I love you, though. We both love laughing and we both have such a great sense of humor. Um, and we both just really, we both do really have that dry humor. Like, <laughs> I'm, no way, I'm the same way. I love sarcasm and, um, and that sort of thing. So I think that's one of the things that's really helped us stay together too, is always just bringing the comedy to whatever BS that we have to deal with of life and all of it. That, that definitely helps us um, just be able to laugh about our trials and tribulations and be able to, to figure it out together. Yeah. That's why Freud called it a mature defense mechanism, humor. <laughs> yes, yes. All right. Well, so we're going to be going to New Orleans soon to plan our 20 year anniversary. So I'm excited for that. And I hope that we get to have 20 more years of love together. <laughs> Me too. 
And of course, you know, like I said, you know, and to keep loving each ourselves because part of our relationship of being able to come together and love each other is really because we we practice our self-care and our self-love for ourselves and our self-compassion and all of that things that we try to talk to our patients about. Um, we try to to live that and be that example, which makes us better partners. No. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that is our time. We want to wish everyone a great self-love Saturday. And as always, I want you to remember that loving yourself is an act of rebellion. Bye, everybody. Self-love Saturday, help live with love. Self-love Saturday, break the cycle of we rebels. Self-love Saturday, help live with love. Self-love Saturday, break the cycle of we rebels.